Welcome to Smart Software with Smart Logic, a podcast where we talk about best practices in web and mobile software development with a focus on new and emerging technologies. My name is Justice Eben, and I'll be your host today. I'm a full stack developer at Smart Logic, a Baltimore based consulting company that has been building web and mobile software apps since 2005. From the Smart Logic team today, I have co host our resident Elixir wizard, Eric Ostrich. Really glad to have him. Say hi, Eric. Hey, everybody. Awesome. And as you might know, if you've been listening, our first series here covers Phoenix and Elixir in production. And today we're joined by a well-known Elixir developer, one of the hosts of the famous Elixir Mix podcast, Mark Erickson. Say hi, Mark. Hey, friends. Awesome. So Mark is uh, a pro at this podcasting thing. Uh, Mark, to start out, could you introduce yourself, give us a little bit of background and you know how you got started with Phoenix and Elixir? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I have been doing um, development for a long time, software development in general. And then it was around 2006, I was doing C-sharp development. And then maybe, and then 2008-ish, I learned about Ruby on Rails and doing C sharp web development before like they even had MVC framework. It was using web forms. It was terrible. It was a terrible experience. And then when I, I, I learned, I come to Rails and it's like, wow, this is how it should be. This is how web development should be. And I, I, I fell in love with it. I moved across the country just to have opportunities to work with that technology, even without having a job lined up, just because I knew the market I wanted to be in. And, and then, so that was, and then I've done, I've done rails for a long time. And then I through the kind of Ruby on rails community. There's uh, Dave Thomas wrote a book. He's written a lot of Ruby books. He's started writing Elixir books and I started a well, lot. I respect his opinions. So I started looking into Elixir and then I fell in love with Elixir with the same amount of kind of excitement that I had with rails. And I was like, wow, this is how it should be. I'm having so much fun again. It's like the most fun I've had in programming uh, in doing Elixir since I, since I you know, first kind of found Rails. And so I've been doing Elixir ever since and uh, you know, making job choices and things just to make sure I could work with the technology that I really cared about that I felt it wasn't like so much like, oh, I want to work with the new Shiny. It's like I felt I was a better developer with these tools. And so that's why I wanted to work with Elixir. So that's kind of how I got here. Yeah, I can, I can definitely concur with uh, feeling like a better developer in Elixir. Now that we have a, an intro out of the way, uh, could you give us a quick overview of the Elixir projects that you have in production? Sure, yeah. So I, I came to uh, the current company that I'm at, I came and I started here in June. So they already had some existing Elixir and Rails uh, software. Prior to that, I was with a separate company in the fintech space. It was a startup. And that was a place where I was the lead software architect for their backend Elixir system. And that was really where I got to kind of build from the, the ground up and had a lot of fun doing that. So I've, I've had experience kind of on both sides, right? So the, the system I built previously, it was an umbrella um, with two Phoenix apps in it. One was like an admin facing Phoenix app, but everything was like really in that umbrella. And then come to since June, I've been with this other company now and that we have about eight or nine services 
and two of them are rails and one's a, a monolith and and then we have one two three uh, a number of other elixir ones like, or there were rails projects that have been converted to elixir so it's like and so i've kind of been introducing okay well we can bring some of these together as an umbrella to kind of improve some of the inter inter communication and organization uh so we're doing that but yeah so i've had but that's kind of what i have in production right it's like i've got like the rails you can kind of call it or the the elixir kind of monolith is i kind of call it a microlith <laughs> <laughs> the idea of the uh small applications inside of an umbrella mm. and and then there's the uh multiple services coordinating together so i've done both and currently working with the multiple services one so is there is there any like particular reason why you picked elixir to use in production um yeah um well once i kind of first found elixir i fell in love with uh so at first you know trying to just get my head around pattern matching was a little bit difficult it's like this is telling me no match and i don't even know what that means you know when i'm trying to do like an assignment or something uh, so once I kind of got past that, then it was, it was the OTP concepts, just that I have these fundamentals, these primitives built into the beam that are incredibly powerful. And just like I have supervisors and I can have supervision trees and I can have named processes that I can find and send messages to and they can do work for me and it's all concurrent and parallel. And so that was really why I started wanting to have Elixir in production is just all these so much, it comes with so much powerful stuff out of the box. Mm. This is a really common thread we hear from people. The, the coming, first of all, they're coming from the Ruby and rails background where syntax is King and the first challenge being understanding pattern matching. And then once you understand pattern matching, you having this like, incredible weapon at your disposal and then i mean you laid it out perfectly because the the easy concurrency primitives um i mean this is like the recurring thread every single time we hear from people um they're they get stoked about the pattern matching and then they get stoked about the standard library and it's, it's exciting to see that uh, commonality for me yeah yeah I've, I've seen it a lot too and i think that's a testament to just kind of what uh, the erlang community has already built up and the how how solid it really is as a technology and a foundation that we can just take elixir and the work of uh you know more modern language kind of syntax put on top of it and some other modern helpers like macros to really have a powerful system mm. and that, that has a lot of that you know what was considered valuable from rails was that developer happiness and developer friendliness but then it takes that and it's like the grown-up version where <laughs> it's like but I don't fall down. And if I do fall down, I get back up. You know, I got, I'm supervised. I got it. You know, it's like, it's just, it's like, it's solid. Do you think that coming from rails to Elixir, you get a similar sort of community vibe where everybody's very helpful and, and, and a newbie friendly that you maybe didn't get in the C sharp world? Well, it's true. The C sharp world was very commercial. It was very like business oriented like you when you go to a meetup uh like dot net like this is in the early days right when i was going to some of these meetups i was wanting to kind of get into this tech it it was like recruiting is what what it was there about you know and there's 
it, it was just all business. It was like, these people aren't here for fun. They're, they're like networking. And then you go to a Rails or like early days Ruby meetups and it was like, hey, we're just playing with this awesome tech that we're having fun with. And we don't have, we're not even doing it with our job yet. We're just doing it because we care about it. Yeah, and, that, that, that feels like a lot of the Elixir meetups I've been to where it's like, how many of, like, how many of you are doing this in like professionally and like two out of the 10 hands will go up. <laughs> I know, it's true. And, and so I, I do run a Utah Elixir meetup. And so I do see that a lot. And there's a lot of people who are coming. We have people who are current students, like going to university. We have people who are actually, you know, working in, you know, professionally and they're not using Elixir yet and people who are, but it is, there's a lot of interest and people are coming just because it's fun and it's a community. And I, I think that I'm glad to see that the Elixir community has borrowed and, and kind of built on that pattern from the Ruby community. I think that's a, a good pattern to have. Cool. So we've heard a bit about the uh, advantages of Elixir. Um, but we should touch on maybe a brief bit of a disadvantages. So have you seen any, I guess, during your, your usage of Elixir? The, the, I think the biggest one that I've seen is when I started doing um, building releases uh, and, and then just doing the configuration management around releases. And then that's been a topic in the community for a while. It's a recognized problem. And it's not, it's not unsolvable. You know, I have it solved, but like kind of figuring that out and like this is, can be a little clumsy. So I'm looking forward to when we have a really good solution around that. Uh, just, yeah. just recently I saw uh, like with the release of uh, Elixir 1.8, uh, Jose was announcing, hey, this is some of the stuff, the, the main new feature we're working on for 1.9. And he was talking about how they want to be able to have a mixed release as a full part of the language feature, not like a, an external, you know, a third party pro, uh, library. So I'm really optimistic that this can be something we solve elegantly. And I'm looking forward to seeing how we do that. But currently that's the, the pain point I have. Yeah, <clears throat> I help, or I, I run a, an open source project uh, that actually showed at Utah Elixir. Um, but every now and then someone will pop in and say, hey, like I, I wanna, like turn this on for production. I was like, well, this is like, you have to become a full-time Elixir developer. Like, that's just, sorry, but we're getting there. <laughs> yep, so, yeah, that's true. The, yeah, definitely the, the big pain point right now, so. Mm. So maybe we can segue from some of the, the discussion about these uh, pain points to some, some of the like hosting environment questions, Eric. Yeah. Um, so I guess the, the first big one is where do you uh, put these Elixir apps in production? So we are running on AWS, and um, since I came back to the, I came to this company in June, um, I, my focus has been moving to Kubernetes, and uh, so like previously these are just uh, being deployed um, to you know a, a Amazon EC2 instances, and so now we're moving to uh, like we're I'm. Happy to say next week, we're going to be rolling out the production Kubernetes deployment. And uh, it's been a long time coming, you know, getting everything set up. Cool. But yeah, so we're so we're getting... Amazon EKS for that. Cool. So we're getting super, super fresh news. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> cool. Uh, so it's Kubernetes. So you're obviously using Docker. 
what what else are you doing besides Docker? Is it distillery? Like, how are you getting those on Kubernetes, etc.? Yeah, so it's it, it is Docker and distillery 2.0 using releases there, and then just using you know YAML files uh, for creating the deployments, and then a, a series of kind of Bash scripts for saying, hey, now I want to roll out this version, you know, just modify the version and roll that out. And, you know, so the, the build, it's like a build script too. That'll, it, it, I kind of, I followed the distillery pattern where he said, this is Bitwalker, Paul Schoenfelder, mm. who uh, runs that project. And he set up a pattern using make files. And so that's, I've just kind of continued with that. Make files. Oh. <laughs> I know. Really? They're like, they're kind of archaic because like they have to be tab delimited, you know, or tab yeah. indented. And it's like, cause it doesn't work without that. And like, I couldn't tell my editor doesn't care about tabs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but once I got that figured out, it's like, you know, using make files uh, to build and push to the ECR, the uh, elastic container registry, whatever it is called on AWS. Yep. So, and then it is my intention as part of this whole deployment and moving to Kubernetes is that we will have a continuous integration, continuous deployment. So I, I currently, my plan is to use that like using GitLab, uh, like an internally hosted GitLab that will do uh, as you know, merges happen and then we can auto deploy uh, to Kubernetes there. So that's my goal. Cool. Are you, so I, I know a tiny bit about the Kubernetes world. Are you using Helm or, case sonnet i don't know if they do the same thing i know their words <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so helm is really helpful uh helm is a project um and you you create a or use files called charts and a chart is really uh so like if i wanted to deploy a service to kubernetes uh there's a series of yaml files that i would have to create one would be one defines the deployment itself, which you know talks about the environment variables and how the secrets are given to the container and all of that. And then one said another file would say this is how my service is ex exposed so that I can talk to it from outside or within the cluster. And then you know I might have an ingress that says this is how um, things from outside of the cluster can talk to this service. So you have these series of YAML files and a chart uh, lets you wrap all of those up together into like a like a zip file kind of thing and it, it's like a templating building uh convenience i haven't started using those yet i'm getting i'm starting to get to the point where that would be helpful um but uh cool. so far i haven't needed it yet but i have used helm and charts for installing other services into my kubernetes like prometheus or uh, grafana things like that cool um so when you do do a deploy are you able to get uh, zero downtime when you do yes. the deploy? Yes, and, and uh, that is a really convenient benefit of uh, Kubernetes, where I can just say, uh, deploy this, and, it, and in the configuration of the YAML file, I say I want it to be a rolling update. And so it will say, all right, well, you can configure it all, you know, but by default, I'm gonna say I want create one new instance. Once that's up, take down the old one, and then roll out to the next one and the next one. So like say I've got three instances of my application running, it'll just kind of roll them out one at a time and wait for it to come up and be, be solid and you know health checks kind of thing. And then it goes on to the next one. So yes, it's uh, Kubernetes makes that part easy. So I guess our, our next question is, um, are you able to do any clustering inside of Kubernetes? Yes. Um, yeah, so I, I mentioned we have like eight or so services and 
two of them, uh, two of the Elixir ones are um, clustered. Most of the other ones are, they're, they're really kind of following more of that um, microservice kind of architecture and where they just talking through uh, REST web calls. But uh, what I do like is that libcluster, also by Paul Schoenfelder, <laughs> Bitwalker, same person as Distillery, you know, you can kind of get a vibe here, right? He's had to solve some of these problems. And, and so he's done a really good job with libcluster. Uh, there's a different strategies uh, that they provide, and there's a cluster strategy for Kubernetes. And so I'm using that one. So what that, what that does, the way it works, just kind of the overview, is it allows your, uh, your deployment to Kubernetes to query Kubernetes itself and say, hey, where are the other applications that are named this? And like, you can look up, you know, query by label. And so when it finds them, it just says, okay, here are all the other applications that have the same label. That's, that's your application that you want to be clustered. And then it just hooks it up and I don't have to worry about it. So that makes it really easy. Love it. Yeah, I've looked, at, I've looked a tiny bit into the Kubernetes clustering stuff, um, but the rest of Kubernetes has scared me away, so I never, never, got, never got to that point. <laughs> I understand. Like, uh, the, the way I got into it um, was uh, there was a you know, humble bundle. Um, they have like games that you can buy, like a, a pack of games or something. They also do books, and they had a DevOps humble bundle. And so I was able to buy a whole bunch of books and, you know, some of them were Kubernetes. And, and so I was like, I started going through those books and started spending my time doing that. And, and that's kind of how I got there. But yeah, it's like, it's daunting if you don't have a guide, like either a book or some kind of tutorial or something to kind of walk you through it. Yeah. We, we, I played briefly around in early Kubernetes and then uh, maybe like three years ago, three or four years ago, like, and, um, then stopped using it for like six months. And then when I look back at it, it was all different. <laughs> and so, yeah. so that's, that's where I'm currently at. Like I know a little bit of what it is and <laughs> it's all changed. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that kind of is funny is like when you're doing all of your uh, working out Kubernetes locally, you're usually, usually doing something like Minikube where it runs like a kind of mini cluster in a VM on your machine. And that, when you then say, okay, I've got it. I figured it out. I can make this all work. And then you go and try and do it on production. It's like, oh, now you have to know how to talk, like especially in AWS, right? Now I have to, you have to kind of take into account IAM roles and you know, things that are AWS specific. And mm. how, how do I get the Amazon uh, application load balancers to talk to my Kubernetes cluster? You know, so it's, and that'll be different with, you know, if you're going to Azure or DigitalOcean, you know, it's like, it's, it's just kind of, that boundary problem. Yeah. Yeah. I was doing it on the, the Google cloud Yeah, at that point, but cool. So how does, how did, how do these new Elixir apps that you've got compared to it sounded like you replaced at least one of your old Ruby apps? Like how, how do they compare? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so one example, I guess, is just thinking about resources. Um, I don't, you know, our load is not, the, the traffic load is not so high that we're concerned about, you know, we're, we're not like at a, a Twitter scale or anything like that where we really care about that much. But it's like uh, putting a, a Rails application with Passenger and Nginx 
into a container and just getting four instances of this Ruby app running, it's like 750 megabytes of RAM. And that's just allowing me to do four parallel requests. And, and it's like, that is, that's insane, right? You know, compared to what I can do with Elixir. And so I can run a, a, an Elixir application in a, a container. And, you know, this is a sizable Elixir application and I'm running about 100 megabytes of RAM and it's concurrent up to, you know, uh, some unbounded set of, you know, uh, concurrent uh, requests that I can handle. So it's, it's essentially how many uh, ports can you open? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and at some point you do run out of like either they're doing so much work. So it's CPU bound or you're doing so many requests that you're like flooding your network traffic or something. But yeah. So I, I just, I don't have to worry about how many um, requests I can handle when I'm running Phoenix and Elixir. Um, at least at, at the scale that we're at right now, I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Yeah. We're on a, we have an app on Heroku and we did like, this was our first, one of our first actually production servers. Uh, and so we're like, well, what do we need for dino size? I don't know. Pick a two X. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like that's usually a safe bet. And then this thing is like, been running at the, at that 100 megabytes. So like <laughs> that, the only reason we have it is that is like that second CPU core. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, like, uh, cause I don't know, it's been a while since I've used Heroku, but like you have to like go to some certain level just so they don't shut it off. Yeah. <laughs> like, yep. The free tier, they, they, they kill it after inactivity or something. <laughs> so maybe we should move on here talking a little bit about background task processing. Is that about right, Eric? Very good. How are you doing that, Eric? <laughs> Mark Erickson. Yeah. Um, so, so with background jobs, um, you know, every project I've worked on, at some point, you have to deal with that. You know, either either you're wanting to send out uh, an email asynchronously or something. You know, and and I've, a lot of times, I've just liked writing in them myself because with the primitives that are built into the beam. Assuming you're clustered, then you can have, uh, you can just, you know, create a, a, a gen server that's named and kind of coordinate with the other nodes to say, all right, I'm the guy running the background jobs or whatever it is. And, uh, and then it just becomes really easy. Um, uh, there are some off the shelf uh, tools also that we have in production. Uh, there's one called EXQ. And yeah, we've, we've used that one too. Yeah. And that, that has been very helpful for us because we also have uh, these Ruby applications. And so there's this API compatibility. So, that, you know, you could put a job in on the Ruby side and have it processed and fulfilled on the Elixir side. So that makes it easy. And uh, another one is quantum. And uh, so quantum is nice because it, um, it kind of lets you use, you can use like a cron like syntax to say, I want to run these jobs at these, at this time. Uh, so that's a handy one too, that I've used. Cool. So I guess continuing with, uh, the theme of libraries, what other ones have you used, uh, in these applications? So, uh, Phoenix, obviously, you know, they're web applications and, uh, I, we were using elect, uh, Ecto three, um, for sending out uh, emails, uh, we're using a project called Bamboo. And that makes it, what's nice about that is like it gives you a struct for being able to validate 
that the email content is going to have what you want, like the, the correct recipients and the body and everything. And it makes that easy for tests. Um, speaking of tests, uh, there's ex machina. Uh, I use that a lot. I, I don't, I don't know of a better one. It's like, it's great. It comes back from the rails, uh, factory girl, uh, type of, uh, it's like a factory for creating test data and inserting it into your database or not, you know, just building it in memory. Uh, I, I use that on every project. Love it. And then Eric, when I met you at the Elixir Conf, you introduced me to Prometheus EX. And cause you were, it was great. It, um, sidebar, right. Uh, is I think that's the value of going to actual in, in person places where you meet people. So like, I just made the effort. It's like, all right, I just want to meet people. So every time we'd like break, I'd go sit at a different table and just meet people. And that's where I met Eric and he introduced me to Prometheus EX and it's like, and he showed me how it works. And because of his awesome project, uh, X venture, I was able to actually see examples of how to use it because reading the docs was not necessarily clear. And I guess I have to pop in here. It might be anachronistic by the time this comes out, but pretty shortly, Eric will be introducing <laughs> a lot of people to Prometheus at uh, Lone Star. Are you going to be there, Mark? No, I won't have, I won't be able to make Lone Star this year, but no. uh, maybe if, uh, if you're going to the, I'm hoping to make it to the, uh, the Elixir conference in Denver or outside of Denver. Aurora. Aurora. Yes. Yeah. I'm hoping to be there. We should be there. Eric will be there speaking. (laughs) (laughs) Got to be accepted in the CFP first. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Great. And so uh, in terms of just kind of finishing out the libraries, so I already mentioned EXQ and you guys are familiar with that. Another one is Suite XML. Um, Some of the external services like partner organizations deal in XML. So we have to parse that and that works well for that. Um, Absinthe is the last one, and that is a, the Elixir GraphQL implementation that's kind of the default. Uh, like if you want to do GraphQL, you'd probably start with Absinthe. And I, I really love that. That is a, I, I much prefer that over writing REST APIs anymore. So that's my favorite. Cool. So going from uh, libraries to uh, third-party services, have, have you struggled integrating any? A lot of the big like professional ones you don't really have a problem with because there's a lot of good documentation like you know using stripe or uh, talking to aws for s3 uh there's there's um i think it's ex aws or there's there's various aws libraries that already exist for doing some of those things the ones that i've had the biggest issue with are like the custom partner ones uh like i had to uh, with the fintech company that i was with one of the things we had to do was our partner organization was a bank and banks are not known for being super tech leading edge. Right. And this, this company was like, uh, given credit, I guess, for being much more tech savvy than our first partner. They were terrible. (laughs) I won't name them by name, but they were terrible. I mean, it was, it was the worst thing. Like, like literally we're having to FTP files and, you know, pull FTP folders. It was terrible. And having to literally use Java applications to write XML file, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, Excel files, spreadsheets. It was, oh, it was awful. Wow. So anyway, this, this new modern bank partner, they had VB.net and they had a SOAP API. 
and that was just you know it's inconsistent on every different request and was, so that that's where i've spent a lot of the the time it's just like it's the external partners they aren't big they don't have they're not investing in making their service easy to use for de- for other developers that's mm. not my focus well i'm sure we could spend a lot of time um talking about uh, soap apis <laughs> and how bad they are uh, you guys, but you guys deal with that too <laughs> yeah but uh we, we do have uh Limited time, and Eric, we've got some uh, closeout questions here if you want to start with that punch list. (laughs) Sure. So I guess our our first one is, uh, do you have any story where Elixir saved the day in production? Yeah, so um, there is one that comes to mind. It was basically we had, so a lot of the focus of this uh, primary application that I work with is it's an applicant tracking system. So you have people who are applying to like the tenant space, they're applying to uh, an apartment or something like that. And as part of this whole process, we're doing background checks and you know, that, that's kind of the, the space that we're in. And um, we had, so the main applicant tracking page is kind of like the homepage for uh, you know, the property managers who are kind of seeing who all has been applying. And that is a, was a very heavy, so it's served by Rails, and it was a very heavy page in terms of the size of the JSON download because it was a view front end, view JS front end, and the size of the download of, the, of the, all the data that was coming down and all of the data it took to build this, uh, this, this set of data, right? Because you have like a list of an applicant and an applicant and they invited roommates. So like you have multiple roommates and each one of those has a different... Um, application status for their and background check status. And so you have all these different, it's like for one applicant or one application, you, it kind of goes down, like it kind of fans out into all these different related things that you're, you're fetching. And so we had all these things in the rails app to try and make that work. So, you know, we have, we have uh, uh, Redis caches, we have in database denormalized, you know, caches, all this stuff to just try and like, so this is not a terrible page to be on because it's like the main page. And, you know, so it really kind of depends on each individual company, like how many applications they would have. But like we have, you know, we have uh, one of our clients has like 10,000 uh, properties that they manage. And so like, there's a lot. And, and so thankfully it's kind of broken out, you know, so it's not all in one, but that was the nature of this problem. Right. And so when we experimented with how can we do this, differently with Elixir. So this was the, still the view front end, talking to a GraphQL backend and using the data loader library that's part of the Absinthe project. And what that let us do is it basically does one query for the applicants and then using data loader, it's able to fetch out all the different uh, you know, related tables, but it's able to do that in parallel. And then it pulls all the data back together and so like, I don't even have to worry about how it does that. And so that was awesome. And then the other aspect of it was because it's GraphQL, we could say, well, normally previously we were having this large JSON uh, body come down that we were saving into like view stores, you know, so we could like move around between pages. And we realized we don't need to do that. We can just say, well, what is the data I need for this page? And just fetch it all in one document. And it literally went 10 times faster, like from over three seconds per page load to like, you know, un, you know, like 300 milliseconds. It was literally like 
10 times faster. And then the JSON download literally got 10 times smaller. And so it's like, like all the other efforts that we'd made to um, optimize and make it and make it work. We actually just were able to remove all of that. It's like, it's like, that was the, that was Elixir. That was the, you know, the benefit of these mature libraries like Absinthe and data loader, which are all doing, you know, it's taking advantage of everything that's in Elixir and the, the beam runtime to, to be, to be concurrent and automatically parallelizing work where it can be done. And that was it. I, I, that was a huge win for me. And it's just like, you know, just, you know, you get all kinds of buy-in when you get something like that. We're like, Oh, all of a sudden we deployed it and everything's like literally faster, like noticeably an improvement. Now, did you uh, take a screenshot of the, of some <laughs> chart somewhere that showed like really high graph and then just a huge dip? You know, I would have if I'd, if I had already met you and you'd show me, something. <laughs> I didn't have that. <laughs> Sir, are you using any cool OTP features? Um, well, like I, I kind of described before, we have these multiple services and there are a lot of them are just kind of like Phoenix apps. Uh, so there's all the communication between them is HTTP calls. So there's really nothing impressive or f really fun going on there. But I actually kind of view that as a testament to like, you don't have to worry about that. You can be insanely productive and not have to understand any of that because because of what Phoenix gives you, Phoenix automatically creates a process per request. So you're automatically concurrent and running in parallel. And then Ecto has connection pooling and it's automatically going to buy you a lot. So you can go really far without doing any of that. Uh, but, you know, I have worked on other projects like, you know, at the FinTech company where there was a lot more that was uh, OTP specific, you know, where we, we have gen servers that are managing work queues and then you have using gen stage uh, to have a set number of workers because we had this partner bank and we don't want to flood them with requests like when we're doing like a background job or something. So we're kind of throttling ourselves. Uh, so the, that kind of stuff, it's like, it just makes it easy. So, yeah. All right. And our last question here is uh, if you could give one tip to developers out there who may or already have uh, Elixir in production, what would it be? I think kind of following on with that last one, it's just, have fun with it, right? And just enjoy it. Don't stress. I've talked to a lot of people who kind of get frozen up about worrying about doing it the right way. Because when you go into all the forums and, and uh, you know, kind of see what people are talking about, they're saying, oh, well, you should do it with context or you should do it with umbrellas or you should do it this way. Like, this is the right way. And it's like, and people kind of get frozen where they don't move. It's like, don't worry about that. One of the nice things about Elixir is if you're doing, if you're just kind of worrying about modules and functions and you're trying to just kind of create, you know, intelligent code, that's just, well, th th you're just designing it well, then refactoring it is not that bad. It is not like refactoring object-oriented code. That is a whole lot, a whole lot harder. So I'd say just keep having fun with it. And then just to kind of reiterate a point that we talked about earlier is going out and actually meeting people, be that at a meetup or at a conference, or something just meet people and you you learn a ton from other people and you have someone who can kind of mentor and just ask questions so that's it mark that is great advice thank you so much before we let you go uh do you want to plug any of your projects any urls that people can go find you at any uh reasons to reach out to you and ways to reach out to you 
Sure. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so I'd love to have people listen on the Elixir Mix podcast. Uh, I'm host on there. Uh, you can check out my blog at brainlid.org. And um, I'm on Twitter, brainlid there as well. And this is just spelled like brain, B-R-A-I-N-L-I-D. Like, you know, flip open my head and I'm sharing my thoughts. <laughs> Are you open-minded then? I try to be very open-minded, yes. Very great. Okay, this has been wonderful. Mark Erickson, thank you so much for joining us today once again. This has been Smart Software with Smart Logic, talking about Elixir in production. Join us for our next episode in this series. Thank you so much to everybody who listened and have a great rest of your day.